Good morning, everyone. Hey, before we get started this morning, I just want to let you know, those of you who brought in those gift cards like I emailed you this week, just give them to me after the service, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. That's like the third time that's happened to me in three years. So um, just so you I mean, so just, if for, just to be clear, um, if I ever have to talk to you about something of that nature, I'm not going to send a vast email like that. It'll be posted on Realm. It's a little bit walled off in our own little security kind of a thing. Or I'll just talk to you face to face, right? I'm not going to send an email or something like that. And then one tip, I, th I found that this was helpful. A lot of the emails had a gmail.com email address attached to it, although they were clever, right? They used my name. They put a dot. They put CCCLH. But it was Gmail. Our emails come from cccLH.org. So if you ever get anything from us, make sure it has at least that email onto it and not that other crazy stuff. I mean, this is the day and age we live in, right? So, um, and if you did happen to buy gift cards, maybe you can be gracious and give those to people who are in need, right? That'd be a wonderful thing. Okay, um, well, before we jump in also, um, I would like to ask for your prayers next Sunday morning. Asa and I, my second born, are flying out to Japan. I'll be teaching for a couple of weeks at Christ Bible Seminary in Nagoya. And so this is the first time I will have been there to teach in four years since the pandemic was over. As you know, Japan just fully opened last year. And so now we're excited to resuscitate our partnership with them. So I'll be out there and, and, and pray for the students because I'm condensing what it's normally a 16-week course into two. So that's just a lot of stuff for the students. And then that's going to be a lot on me teaching for those couple of weeks. So I really would incur, uh, uh, covet your prayers. And for Asa, who will be, be helping with the logistics of the class, as well as being more part of the ministry that he's hoping to join in May when he flies out there for his year-long internship. Um, so grateful for that. But don't worry. You're going to be well served. We're going to continue to go through 2 Samuel. Um, Bob Burris will be back from Africa. I think he flies in tomorrow. So he will be in the pulpit in 2 Samuel 16 next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, we have Robert Paprocki, who's one of our, part of our elder development cohort. He's going to be preaching 2 Samuel 17. So you're going to be well taken care of. And when I get back from Japan, believe it or not, we only have four more sermons in this book. So really, we're going at a pretty quick clip, and, and we're just about wrapping it up. So although it's been a wonderful study, it will come to an end. Um, by the way, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 15 as we pick up our study. Uh, if you're using our Pew Bibles, uh, go to page 248. That's where you're going to find it, 2 Samuel 15 or page 248. While you're flipping over there, let me just put on the screen the verse that's been kind of hanging over the last month of our teaching. It's Nathan the prophet reminding David of the consequence of his sin. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, Nathan says, to do what is evil in his sight? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Sam Bankman Freed, otherwise known as SBF by most of his friends and the media, an American entrepreneur, he was the poster boy for cryptocurrency. Not yet 30 years of age, he was ranked as the 41st richest person in America by the Forbes 400. In 2021, he was on the Forbes list 30 under 30. A son of Stanford law professors, a graduate of MIT, a big donor to left-wing politicians, celebrities, and charities. The only thing bigger than his bank accounts and his contributions and his status was his fraudulent cryptocurrency company, FTX. In 2023, Sam Bankman-Fried was included in the Forbes Hall of Shameless, featuring the 10 picks the publication wishes it could take back. It's a cliche, but it's true. 
things are not always what they seem. And that truism, that axiom is very much applicable here to our study of 2 Samuel chapter 15. What seems like a chapter describing a successful rebellion or a failed king turns out to be something very different indeed. You see, underneath Absalom's success, we see the rot of rebellion. And underneath David's failure, we see evidences and the fruit of faith. As we'll see in our study, Absalom's coup, his rebellion, was fueled by anger, by pride, by manipulation, deceit, and sinful ambition. While David's regained faith is evidenced by his compassion, his selflessness, his loving kindness, his genuine submission to God's will and his repentance, and his dependency on God. So there's a lot in this chapter, and originally I was just kind of reading it, having you sit, because I didn't think we'd be doing this, but since we are now reading the chapter, would you stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he would say, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice." And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron, but Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they, were, they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger, verse 13, came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house, and the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites, and the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go? I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Atai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, whenever, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Atai, go then, pass on. 
So Atai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Verse 24. And Abiathar came up. And behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And the king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Tadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators, conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you, go with, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahiamaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it seems inevitable that Absalom's rebellion would succeed. After all, we learned last week that he is an impressively handsome man with a wonderful head of hair. Might we even assume, since the author of 2 Samuel knew the exact weight of Absalom's cut hair at 200 shekels, that he actually sold his hair for that amount? Well, sillier things have happened with those caught up with such vanity. But back to the chapter here, in verse 1, we see that Absalom has himself a chariot and horses which is actually rather silly given the terraced construction of Jerusalem and the rocky terrain. Practically speaking, Absalom will have nowhere to really ride this chariot and horses. So what is it? Now keep in mind, chariots and horses were tools of the enemies oftentimes, and they were feared uh, machines of warfare. Absalom having one is clearly meant to be a sign of power and a prestige. It is meant to impress those who see him, right? It's practically useless, but it's pretty impressive. Kind of like the dozens of people in our neighborhoods that drive around luxury uh, utility vehicles when they have no intention to go anywhere other than the Spectrum or like Fashion Island, right? <laughs> Too close to home, I suppose. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, says the guy with the Triumph motorcycle doesn't ride out of his neighborhood. So anyway... 
We live in glass houses and we throw rocks. Uh, back to the text. Absalom, Absalom's image here back in verse 1 is complete with 50 men to run before him. What's that all about? I want you to think in your mind, presidential motorcade, impressive vehicle, secret security, secret service, walking around looking intimidating and important. Clearly Absalom is impressed by himself and he expects everyone to be likewise impressed by him. But Absalom, this is not just mere vanity. It is actually treachery. He wants the throne. If you've been with us in our study, you know that he had, has his eyes on the throne for quite some time because he deems the current king, his father, unworthy. And Absalom might have been right. I mean, given the actions that we've seen of King David for the last four chapters... But as is so often the case, when we are blinded by our hurt, our anger, our slights, whether they're real or perceived, we forget our place and think it is ours to determine who is worthy and who is not. But that is a determination that only God can make, not Absalom, not you, not me. Friends, if we were to do a character study, we're not doing a character study, but if we were to do a character study of Absalom and you would see his trajectory and his arc, you would see his anger morphing over the chapters. And one sure way you know that your anger has gotten out of control is that when you functionally usurp the place of God in your decision making, which is exactly what's happening here with Absalom. But the reality is, friends, this is exactly what anger does to us. Remember originally, Absalom's anger was actually very well founded. The violation of his sister Tamar. The absolute apathy of his father David for doing nothing about it many years earlier. But rather than deal with it, those situations in the way that God would have, Absalom took matters into his own hands. Right? Murder, bitterness reigning in his heart to the point where it ruined his heart and ruined his relationship with his father. Friends, be very, very careful with your anger. Anger is one of those emotions. We have a very odd relationship with it. On the one hand, none of us likes our anger, but on the other hand, most of us like to feed it, don't we? In our anger, we put others on trial for crimes against us and punish them as criminals, regardless of whether or not the evidence is legitimate, it doesn't matter. It's how we feel our anger moves us to these actions. You become the victim of their felonies, real or perceived. And friends, we see this all around our society when victimhood becomes your identity. That's a dangerous situation because it mutates and grows until it becomes all-consuming in your life. You see, anger is a strange mixture, often of, on the one hand, self-pity, and on the other hand, self-righteousness. And that is a toxic combination. Not only is it a toxic combination, but when you have self-pity and mixed with self-righteousness, it becomes a very strong narcotic. Because it feels so good to feel so bad because it proves you're so bad and I'm so good. That's how that works. And we say that everywhere in our world. That was Absalom's path. That's the world's path. I wonder how many of you are on that path. Now, as I say that question, because this happened first hour, there can, can be kind of a, a bit of a recoil back to it because as we look at our text, you're nothing like Absalom. Absalom was like a slimy politician, not a good church-going person like yourself. No offense, slimy politicians, if you're visiting, but that, that's true, right? Look at the text. Look at verses 2 through 5. Absalom, he goes to the city gates early in the morning and stays there lamenting how bad things are for the people, how he embraces everyone and kisses them as brothers in their grief. 
He tells everyone they have a case. Too bad the king is too busy to hear it. If only he were in power, things would be different. Right? By the way, he doesn't actually have to do anything. He just needs to make people think that he'll do something. He wants everyone to think that he's for them. He's one of them. He's, he's meeting them at the gate, listening to them, caring for them. Right? In our modern day, we kind of say things, oh, look at him. Look at, look at him kissing the babies. He likes the babies. He's kissing the babies, shaking everyone's hand. Oh, he buys his, his auto parts at Pep Boys and works on his car. Well, no, nobody does that anymore. He plugs in his EV at the Target that I go to. Right? So he's like every one of us. But he's not. Absalom is just exploiting the people for his own purposes. It is a combination both of flattery and cruelty at the same time. Another toxic mix. But this guy is sharp. On the one hand, he's overt in his image projection, right? He wants everyone to see that he's got credentials, that he's got power, that he's got prestige, that he's the one that can get things done. But on the other hand, he's very subtle in his deception and his use of people. So, of course, this could not be your path. None of you are that manipulative or scheming, right? And by the way, this is politics in all its ugliness here in Israel. But guys, if we're being honest, there's a lot of politicking that goes around in our lives every day, even in the church. Now, thankfully, I don't have the experience to, um, I, I read this article in the Gospel Coalition called um, How to Wreck Your Church in Three Weeks. That was it. How to Wreck Your Church in Three Weeks. Now, I, like I said, I don't have the experience to write an article like that with wisdom, but this guy does. But I've been around long enough to know this actually plays out. Listen to this little short article I got from the Gospel Coalition. Week one, walk in the church today and think about how long you've been a member, how much you've sacrificed, and how underappreciated you are. Take note of every way you're dissatisfied with your church now. Take note of every person who displeases you. Meet for coffee this week with another member and share your heart. Discuss how the church is changing and how you're being left out. Ask your friend who else in the church has concerns. Agree together that you must pray about this. That's week one. Week two, send an email to a few other concerned members. Inform them that there seems to be a groundswell of grievances surfacing in your church. Problems have gone unaddressed for far too long and ask them to keep the matter to themselves. After all, we need to maintain unity. As the complaints come in, however, form them into a petition to demand an account from the leaders of the church. Circulate the petition quietly. Gathering support, though, will be easy. Even happy members can be used if you appeal to their sense of fairness. After all, doesn't your side deserve a hearing? Now, be sure to proceed in a way that conforms to your church constitution so that your petition is procedurally correct. Final week, week three. When the growing moral fervor, ill-defined but powerful nonetheless, reaches a critical mass, confront the elders with your demands. Inform them of all the woundedness in the church, which leaves you with no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them that for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied. But whatever happens from that point on, you've won. You've just changed the subject from your church from gospel advance to your own personal grievances. To some degree, you will get your way. And the church will probably require two to three years to recover. But at any future time, you can do it again. All it takes is three weeks. Friends, you may not be looking to overthrow a kingdom or to usurp a throne. 
But are you trying to do so with a church? What about your friend group? What about your employer? Brothers and sisters, look out for how you might be like Absalom. Anger and rebellion, after all, take many forms. Sometimes it's swords and sieges. Other times it can be Bible studies and prayer chains. Brothers and sisters, watch out for how you might be like Absalom. Look out for how you might empower an Absalom in your midst. After all, look at verse 6. Absalom stole their hearts. He stole their hearts. He didn't earn their hearts. He didn't earn their trust or affections. He didn't even make a case. After all, we just read last week that the king was still hearing grievances from his subjects. A blatant lie of Absalom here in chapter 15. But none of that seems to matter because when you employ manipulation, deceit, with prideful ambition, it's very easy to steal people's hearts and minds. In the end of verse 12, we read, And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So the rebellion, right, it did seem successful, but it was full of rot, deception, vainglory, manipulation, and deceit. Not the way any king should ascend to the throne. Not the way any of us should live our lives. Speaking of kings, let's uh, look at the failed king David next. Is this scene what it seems? Is he the failed king that we have seen for the last four chapters? Thankfully, it's not. For the first time in four chapters or in the chronology of the, the, the text, for the first time in about ten years, we are beginning to see the David of old. That's right. From the time of Bathsheba in chapter 11 to where we are now in chapter 15, roughly 12 years have transpired. Now, just notice at a high level, I don't know if you picked this up in the reading, but what we see here in David, again, is there's this decisiveness, this compassion, this trust in God and action in David that has been too, too long in the, in, in the, for us to see. But we're seeing it again in this man. Now let's look at the text, verse 14. David sets out to flee Jerusalem. Now to be clear, I don't think this is necessarily an act of cowardice on David's part. Obviously this can be a very practical move depending upon the size of the, the coup that was against the throne. This might have been a very just prudent move to do. But notice one of David's intentions is that he does not want to subjugate the city to an unnecessary bloody siege. And so he sees that it's better for him to just leave and get out of the city. On the way out of the city, however, notice again this motley crew of individuals that surrounds David that we haven't seen since David's earlier fugitive years. We see that clearly in verses 18 to 23. Uh, Ittai, the Gittite, he, he seems to be the spokesman. He is the leader, obviously, of the Gittites. And then you have this, the, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. They all come from Gath. These are what we would call missionary, uh, missionary excuse me, mercenary armies that, that kind of that bonded themselves with David in his earlier years. And they are still with the king of Israel at this point. But David says to them in verse 20, Go back and remain in Jerusalem, right? So he says, go back and remain in Jerusalem. And notice what he says, that they might experience the steadfast and faithful love of God. Now, if you're one of those kind of persons who's trained to look for keywords in your Bible, I hope this one jumped out because it has been a long time, at least four chapters and 10 years since we saw this word. Remember, steadfast is the Hebrew word for chesed. 
a loyal, covenant-keeping, covenant-making love of faithfulness. It has been far too long, friends, since we've been reminded about this attribute of God in our text, and it's been longer still since we've seen David be remembering and thinking about it. So just, just kind of at a, at a pastoral, theological level, we're starting to see the language, hear the language again that used to mark old David, the David that we love, the David that pointed us to Christ, and he hasn't said this kind of thing for 10 years, or at least recorded in the text, or four chapters. But he says it to Ittai the Gittite. I want you to experience that kind of love. Don't come with me. Second thought, though, so that's the kind of pastoral theological thought. Second thought, military and tactically, David could really use these armies, couldn't he? Now of all times, he needs these kind of rough-and-tumble mercenary guys from Gath to help him fight against the coup. But he's not going to use them for himself. And we'll see later, he has the right orientation again, like the David of old. This is, this is something that God and God alone is doing. David's not going to risk these men. And did you notice in the reading, it's not just these men, it's their wives. And then did you notice the phrase, and all their little ones, all their children as well. And David even says, go back to the king. He, he's kind of resigned himself that this must be the judgment of God and that he himself is no longer the king. Go back to the king and be in peace and experience chesed. We haven't seen this in David in a long time. Thankfully, Ittai will have none of it. Look at verse 21. He says, as the Lord lives and his Lord, speaking of David, as long as he lives, he and his families, they are going to live and die with David. Can you imagine what it must be like to be David? You better believe he was encouraged by Ittai, but he was also so impressed by Ittai. We actually learn uh, in chapter 18, a few chapters later, that David establishes Ittai, this foreigner, to be a commander over a third of the armies of Israel. Good men, good friends like Ittai, are hard to come by. God's gift of loyal friendship here boosted David's faith. Yes, David's faith was starting to bear fruit in that he was thinking of others before himself and he wished the chesed love of God on these people. Even though when he would desire it for himself, he wanted them to experience God's love and it probably is going to happen away from him. Yet God blessed them with this loyal friendship that Ittai showed chesed love back to David. And David was encouraged Friendships boost our faith, right? Godly friendships boost our faith. Friends, I hope you remember that if your faith is faltering. I hope you remember godly friendships buoy your faith when your faith is, is faltering. Friends, that's why it's one of the reasons we make a big deal about regular church attendance here. It's not because we want butts in the seat. No, it's because we want you to experience the rhythm and routine of running into godly men and women that there might be friendships that cultivated there, those friendships that can buoy your faith. Being here regularly is not just good for the church. Serving regularly is not just good for the church. It's good for your soul. It's good for your soul, especially when you serve because you're, you're bumping elbows and rubbing shoulders. Or is that, bub, uh, you know what I mean? You're, you're mixing it up with some very like-minded people. And one or two of those people may turn out to be your very own Itai, who shows chesed love to you when you need it. 
Now, back to the text. Here's what really excites me about what's happening in David's life. We see it down there in verse 24 to 29. Abiathar and Zadok come with all the Levites, and so the whole priestly class, all the clergy come out. You imagine how they must be thinking how encouraging this is going to be for David, that all the Levitical clans come out, and most importantly, they are carrying with them the very symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Absalom, he can have the city, he can have the throne. We have the symbol of God's presence. And in a theocratic nation, that is the most significant authorization and legitimacy of your reign. So they must be stoked. David's going to be so encouraged. And notice what David says to them in verse 25. Then the king said that Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. What? But notice what he says. Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. These are the words of a changed heart, friends. These are the words of a changed man. If David's going to be restored, if God will be so kind to bring him back to what he once was, he's not going to be looking for the Lord's furniture. He wants the Lord's favor or none of it's going to happen. This is a man who understands that he is going to, I mean, this is what repentance looks like. Looks like. He says, look, if God's going to have me, I'm blessed. If he's not going to have me, let him do to me what he wants. I am the servant, he is the master. I serve at his convenience, he does not serve mine. In this line, David understands there's no gimmicks, no false pretense, no rabbit foot religiosity here. There's no conning God. There's no trying to manipulate God through ritual or piety. Just full-blown repentance and submission to the good hand of God, even if that goodness is not what David wants. It's been a long time since anyone in our book of 2 Samuel has expressed this. So you can imagine for me, this was a delight to study in some ways as opposed to what we have been looking at. We're seeing full-blown repentance and submission, and it's beautiful, even though it's at a difficult time and it's going to cost this brother. That's how you know real godly repentance is taking place, as opposed to what we will call you know, worldly repentance or, or fake sorrow. Now, <clears throat> I don't mean fake sorrow like it's pretend, the point I'm trying to get at is there's a, there's a difference between repentance and remorse. Christians know repentance. The world knows the remorse, or just remorse. Unfortunately, some Christians confuse the two. Um, keep your finger here. Go to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want us to talk about, look briefly about this concept of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So what we have going on here, likely... Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, the, Paul told the Corinthian church, guys, you got to exercise some church discipline because there's a brother amongst you who calls himself a Christian and he's doing stuff that not even non-Christians and pagans involve themselves in and you're, you're putting up with it. Exercise discipline for his sake and so the world knows who are the people of God and how we're different. And so we, we assume dutifully that that took place. But then, as often we can be as Christians, they go like overboard. And so the man is repentant, and here at 2 Corinthians 7, Paul's like, hey, take it easy, man. The guy's repentant. Bring him back in. 
So this is what Paul is writing, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 9. Paul says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. I was thinking of reading the rest of the verse because it's important, but it might be confusing. Well, let me read it and we'll unpack it. So, um, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So, put the pin in that. And let's talk about the difference between godly grief and worldly grief, right? First of all, uh, godly grief grieves the loss of communion with God. God's heart has been broken. His commands, which are a reflection of his character, have been broken. His name has been misrepresented to the world. You possibly have led other people into sin, and you're broken up over that. And so on the screens behind me, there's just a list of, and notice how it all kind of works together, Right? So if you're in a community group, I have a bunch of verses to back all this up. I just didn't want to, like, you know, put all that on the screen. We wouldn't be able to see anything. So in your community groups, you'll have this. So godly sorrow, number one, it is God-focused. It's recognizing that what I've done is against the holiness of God. And because it's totally God-focused, it hates the sin. It hates the fact that it's, it hate, I hate that I gossip. I hate that I'm proud. I hate that I'm defensive. I hate this sin, right? It hates the sin. And because it hates the sin... It can accept the responsibility. No blame shifting, no justifying, no, no trying to dodge and weave. And because it accepts responsibility, there's a concern for others that flows that have been impacted by our sin. And because of that, it submits to discipline and accountability. It wants that. That's what Paul is getting at in that second half of verse 11. It patiently accepts the consequences, and the result is a changed heart which produces fruit. Okay, so back to this verse that was kind of a little bit confusing. Sorry, Ugh, I just closed it. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 11, he says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness. Now you could read that to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, as if the guy's trying to, hey, I didn't do that sin. No, what he's saying is that, man, you're so eager to be reconciled to God and his people you're going all out. You've submitted to the discipline and the accountability. You're just wanting to be walk free of all this sin. You're on fire to be restored. That's what Paul's getting at. That's how, I, how they were eager to clear their name because they admitted, I'm the sinner. I was doing stuff that not even pagans do, and you were right for booting me out so that I could see I needed the community of God to be made right. I couldn't embrace my sin and Christ at the same time. That's what he's getting at there. Worldly sin, however, right, which Paul talks about there, is the pain that you experience not because of God's name or communion with God has been broken, but because your pride will be damaged. Your prestige as your sin has been named, made known will be tainted. You're worried about what people will think about you, what you will do. The pain is all about you. So like the converse of godly sorrow, worldly sorrow is totally self-focused. Right? Totally self-focused. And because of that, really what's going on, it doesn't hate the sin. It hates the consequences of sin. I got caught. Now I can't do X or Y. I got caught. Now this is going to happen to me. It doesn't hate the sin. It hates the problems that sin made. 
right? And because of, the, of that reality, it is self-protective. It's not focused on God's glory. It's on our glory. So we're going to protect ourselves. And because it's self-protective, we're now going to blame other people because we're trying to defend ourselves from their accusations or their concern to reconcile us. See, all this works together. We blame other people. And obviously, we'll criticize any disciplinary process that we get put through. And we impatiently demand trust and restoration. I remember this guy, his husband said, it's been two months. I've been totally honest and upright with my wife and upfront. It's like, yeah, okay, so you were lying to her for a decade and you think in two months she should get over it. Come on, man. But that was just showing to me, this guy doesn't understand repentance. He was demanding trust. He was demanding restoration. Not realizing the damage that he had done or she had done. People, women do this as well. The result is an unchanged heart which produces no fruit. And because emotions are, are the textures of our emotions and the way they function, you're not sitting there going, I feel something. Oh, it's godly, godly sorrow. Yes, that's what it is. That's not how that works. Sorrow is sorrow. But the nuances and the textures will reveal and your response will reveal, is this godly sorrow that I'm feeling? Or is this just remorse over the consequences of being a knucklehead and now i got to deal with it? There is a difference. Back to our text. We're clearly seeing from David, godly sorrow. God will do what he's going to do, and that's okay with me, even if it turns out in a way I don't want it to be. It's been so long since we've seen that from David. Let's so back to the text here. Um, verse 31, David receives even more devastating news. Ahithophel sides with Absalom. David's reaping more of what he's sown. Remember I taught you that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And Absalom being the cunning individual he knows, he knew he could manipulate Ahithophel's hurt and turn him against the king. Absalom's such a, a slime guy, that slimy that way. Or he just understands people. Hurt morphs into anger very easily and he knew he could turn Ahithophel. And so David prays, verse 31, Right? He prays to God. By the way, this is the first time we see a prayer recorded or hear a prayer from David um, since chapter 12 when he prayed for the life of his child with uh, Bathsheba before it died. In our, in, our, in our study, that's been four chapters chronologically. That's been almost 11 years. I'm sure David prayed sometime between then. We just don't see it until we see it here. In this chapter, David's coming back. Now, don't get me wrong, David's not at his best in chapter 15, but he clearly is not at his worst either, right? David, again, he's finding his footing. And maybe because of as the ground gives way. The moment everything, all the ground around him gives way, David is finding his footing. In the crucible of God's discipline, David finds himself again. It's like, it's like God knew this rough and tumble shepherd boy, he's had comfort for too long and it's made him soft. I'm going to put him in the pressure cooker because then I know what's going to come out of him. And it's the David I want again. Friends, may it be said of us that we will take fervor for the Lord in the furnace any day over the complacency that comes from comfort living, comfortable living. Let me say that again. May it be true that we will take fervor for God in the midst of the furnace rather than the complacency that comes from comfort. But here's the thing that's hard. Man, we love comfort. 
I'm from Hawaii. I get it, man. Hammock, beach, palm trees. That's it. That's what I'm about. But that's not what produces the most. That's not produce, that doesn't produce godliness in us as much as the furnace. And David is showing it. There is fruit coming out of David's life, and it is of faith. Let me ask you this. Is that how you understand your relationship with God? Are you willing to have that kind of relationship with God where God says, I want you to be fervent for me, and if that means you're in the furnace, that's what I'm going to do. Because if I give you comfort, you get complacent, right? Guys, how do you build muscle? Not by sitting down watching TV, right? You build it by tearing it down, by disciplining it, by straining it, by stretching it, and you get stronger. Ladies, I don't have a comparable analogy. (laughs) You guys get the point. Oh, that was so, like, sexist. I was going to say, like, jazzercise or Pilates, but that, that's not even a thing now. Sorry. Let's wrap up. Okay. If, if we can relate to both Absalom and David, the question we want to end with is how do we avoid the rot of uh, the rebellion and how do we bear the fruits? How do we avoid the rot and how do we bear the fruit? I think the one way we do that is to reflect and to remember that there once was another king who left Jerusalem while there was a coup taking place. And like David, he crossed the Kidron Valley on his way to the Mount of Olives. And like David, he was betrayed as well when his friends would turn their backs on him. And like David, he wept as well. But he didn't weep because of his own sin. He wept because of Absalom's sin. He wept because of David's sin. He wept because of your sin and my sin. He wept over the people whose anger consumes them, blinds them, and enslaves them. He wept over apathetic fathers who should have done something but did nothing like David did. He wept over failed kings and fathers who can no longer point us to God or rebellious sons who did the same. He wept over the carnage of sin over his creation. But the good news is he didn't just weep. He took it to the cross. He took all of that to the cross so that you and I, rebellious and failed fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, could know forgiveness for our failures, mercy to be more, experience grace so that we can show it to others around us when they fail us until the day comes when everything that's foreshadowed here is made real here. But that can only happen, and that will only happen when our hearts are broken to our own sin. Not towards the sin of others, towards you, as real as that might be. But we're broken of our our sin. Because as we've learned in our study of 2 Samuel, the line that divides the heroes and villains, the good guys from the bad guys, is a lot more blurred than we often like to admit. And the sins we so easily remember against us are often the same kind of sins we readily commit towards others. And so we got to be broken about our sin, right? And realize and reflect and remember that Jesus Christ lived a substitutionary life and died a substitutionary death for all of us, the heroes and the villains, the good ones, the bad ones, the religious and the irreligious. When we get that, when we get that truth, that grasps us, it prevents the rot of rebellion that's in our hearts and produces the fruit of faith that fills our lives. 
And just like we see in Absalom and David, what could it have been if Absalom repented of his anger? Could he have been the next king? We'll never know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just every turn of the page in 2 Samuel outcomes just wisdom for us to live by. Father, and as, as we're going to be leaving the teaching of 2 Samuel within just a couple of months, we pray that what we've learned would never depart from us. That as beautiful, we see your plan working out in such a, a nascent form in the kingdom of Israel. We do realize, and these chapters remind us, that that wasn't the fulfillment of the plan by a long shot. That we all still await the one righteous king. And Lord, when you come, we pray you'd find us ready. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.